Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a new podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you like the podcast, please write a review and rate us on iTunes, as it will really help us to get this message out there. Also, be sure to visit our website at occultlondon.co.uk, where you can subscribe to the show. If anyone has any questions for me, then I'd love to answer them and love to hear from you. So please reach out via Facebook or on email as I'd love to answer any of your questions. You can find the email address on the show notes or alternatively email me at occultlondonpodcast at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy it. In today's episode, because of the time of year is Halloween, I wanted to do an episode specifically celebrating this awesome festival and also to talk a little bit about some of the background behind this particular festival. Halloween is a festival that we all know and enjoy in most countries in the western world. Um, The dark evenings, the pumpkin carving, the fancy dress costumes. However what is the, the what's the real kind of traditions behind this festival and what are its roots? And that's what I wanted to talk about in today's episode. Halloween as a festival is very much focused on the element of the human experience that is a very important aspect of our existence and is in common to all human beings upon this earth. And that is the relationship between the living and the dead. Every civilization since the dawn of time has had different rituals festivals and practices focused on what happens when we die where do we go and also how are the ones that we leave behind and also how should we honor people that have passed beyond on that final journey from which no man returns we see different practices associated with answering these questions globally from the day of the dead in mexico You get tomb sweeping day in China and then obviously the ancient Celtic traditions of Samhain and the Christian festival of All Hallows Eve and All Saints Day. All of these festivals have one thing in common and that is they are designed to help mankind build a better relationship with the dead. Halloween is normally celebrated on the 31st of October which is the eve of of the Western Christian Feast of All Hallows Day, and which also begins the observance of All Hallows Tide, which is the time in the year dedicated to remembering the dead saints, martyrs, and also traditionally the faithful dead. However, the origins of Halloween are much older and likely stem from the Celtic Harvick Festival of Samhain. What is Samhain? Um, Samhain can really be considered the third festival of the harvest in ancient Celtic culture, the first and second being Lammas, which is August the 1st, and the autumn equinox, known as Mabon, which is September the 21st. And if we look at the, the accoutrements of Halloween these days, the fancy dress, the games, the pumpkins, the, the you know scary ghosts, etc., you know, it really does feel more of a sort of pagan festival than anything else. So let's talk about Samhain. Samhain is a pagan religious festival, so originating in the Celtic tradition and was usually celebrated 
around October the 31st to November the 1st. And its purpose was really to welcome in the harvest, usher in the dark days of winter. Samhain dates back to the ancient Celts that lived around 2,000 years ago. And although a lot of authors and uh, tend to talk about Samhain as being a celebration of the dead, it is actually derived from a Celtic word which means summer's end. So the word Samhain is actually thought to derive from the Celtic Gaelic word Samhain from Sam which means summer and Fuin or end. So it's summer's end. And this is really to do with the fact that the early Irish cultures believed that the year was divided in half so there was a dark half of the year and a light half of the year. And the festival of Samhain marks the end of that light half and the beginning of that dark half. For Celtic culture, um, summer is very much that sort of light part of the year. The celebration, obviously the apples are on the trees. There's um, you know nice hot weather and you know plenty of food to go around. While the winter is obviously the dark part because that's when you need to have that food stored up. You know, you might have to slaughter your cattle and keep them um, so that you've got some food to eat through those difficult winter months. When it's dark, there's obviously more danger around um, in terms of protecting where you live, etc. And obviously within the darkness as well, this is the first night of the darkness. So it's very much about this idea that this is when the spirits would start to, to roam around. To the people celebrating Samhain, it was considered to be a time when the barriers between the physical world and the spirit world break free. And it's really considered one of the most important festivals of the four quarterly fire festivals taking place between the fall equinox and the winter solstice. So families would burn fires outside and they would obviously gather in all the remaining harvest and then there'd be big feasts and celebrations. One, to actually celebrate that the harvest had been brought in, um, but also from the point of view of it's almost like a last party before we go into the difficult and leaner winter times. Tradition says that on Samhain nights, um, communities and villages, after they'd brought in the harvest, would gather around large fires and burn livestock and some of the crops they'd gathered in large fires, known as bone fires, which later became bonfires. Through the act of burning some of the harvest, it was considered they were both making an offering to the gods and goddesses to say thanks for the harvest in the year, but also it's a symbolic way of cleansing the old year. It's welcoming in the new, as well as offering to ensure the safety and prosperity of the community moving forward. So it's very much this idea of giving an offering to the gods to ensure that hopefully they keep my family safe throughout the dark winter months. At these celebrations, it's been said that the Celts would wear strange costumes and masks uh, and there'll be lots of feasting, dancing and also storytelling. And they would often talk about this, you know, the cycles of life and death to honour the ancestors and give thanks for the year. The practice of setting out food for the dead, which we see still these days in uh, practices, particularly within sort of the Day of the Dead, etc., and also other practices in you know Eastern and um, Central Europe, 
Um, but this was very much a, a, a standard thing that happened, this setting out of the food for the dead, as well as welcoming the dead back into the community for one night. And it was believed that at Halloween or Samhain, the doorway between the world of the living and the dead was open. So it was assumed that the dead ancestors would be there. But also you'd get elves, you'd get fairies, you'd get goblins, and other spirits would also be walking around as well. The practice of wearing a disguise was also apparently to do with the idea that there was a possibility that the spirit of a person that one may have done wrong in life may come back and may try and make an appearance, potentially uh, to take revenge on you. And in order to try to escape this, people would actually disguise their faces with ashes from bonfires, uh, a practice later known as guising, and this later develops into wearing masks um, made from different materials, wood, etc. And also the idea being that when if a living person recognised the spirit of a loved one, then they could obviously reveal themselves, but at the same time remain protected from unwanted darker forces. So something to remember if you're doing any fancy dress parties this weekend. Um, it was also expected that the dead or the ancestors might cross over at any time and it's said that the practice of fancy dress may originate from the idea of the Celts that they would dress up as animals and monsters so that the fires would not be tempted to kidnap them and the spirits would not take the children away. And this idea is quite well expressed in a book I was reading actually called The Witch's Halloween by Gerina Dunwich, which is worth checking out. And I quote, Every Samhain, a deity known as the Lord of the Dead, was said to gather together the souls of all men, women and children who had died during the previous year and had since been confined in the bodies of animals while waiting to enter the underworld. With their sins expiated, they would be set free to begin their journey to the Celtic underworld of Turnanog, whose open gates awaited them. In addition, homesick spirits were free to roam the mortal world and return to their old earthly homes to seek the warmth of the hearthfire and the company of their living kin. Families prepared offerings of fruits and vegetables and hilltop bonfires which illuminated the night sky with an eerie orange glow and served as a guiding light for the souls of the dead. These fires were kept burning throughout the night to frighten away any evil spirits that intended to harm the living. And that's a quote from Jarena Dunwich. So as well as this celebration, the dancing and feasting aspects of Samhain, it was also considered this time when the dead could communicate with the living and also provide advice and guidance for the year coming up. And these messages would provide comfort and direction, obviously, for the people during the dark time of the year coming up. And it was also to sort of decide specific things, or it could even be things like, who am I going to marry, that type of stuff. It's thought that these divinations or psychic readings would have been conducted using different tools. So they found evidence of things like throwing bones, uh, the Celtic Orem, um, runes as well. And also the Roman invaders also talk about other methods which use like leaves, 
rocks and twigs as well as part of these celebrations. And after the celebrations were over, it said that each family would take a piece of the main fire of the top of the hill, a sacred ember, and take it back to their dwelling where it would be the basis for the fire in the hearth for the next year. And these fires were meant to be kept burning day and night over the dark time of the year, and it was believed that if they went out, then trouble and misfortune would follow. Sometimes as well, people would traditionally leave food outside their doors as well, and this is a tradition that goes on you know, well, well into today's society as well, the idea you'd leave food outside the door to appease evil spirits who may be lurking around and obviously distract them from uh, coming into your house and causing chaos. Um, the Druids are also mentioned to have performed sacrifices on the eve of Samhain, although there's not a lot of evidence to to prove this apart from what we, we kind of hear from sort of Roman accounts, which were very um, slightly biased. Um and they talk about the Druids constructing giant wickerwork cages in the shapes of animals. And, and in those cages, there would be prisoners that would then be set alight as an offering. There was also talk of um, you know other sacrifices as well happening uh, around this time. And Pope Gregory the Great to Abbot Melitus mentions this when he says that the sacrifice of oxen in pagan worship should be allowed to continue, but that this should be done in honour of the saints and sacred relics. And again, um, these ceremonies of the Druids were meant to be seen as a sort of function of appeasing the gods, but also being a way for them to predict the future and provide good and also um, bad omens if they needed to. And they performed these types of ceremonies really at the beginning of the year, because it's the new year and they wanted to know the outcome of that long dark winter so you know they wanted to know will my family be okay uh, when this is over etc so that's why they did those types of things as i said got to take some of the the uh, discussions about the druid sacrifice stuff i think with a bit of a pinch of salt because a lot of the evidence to suggest that comes through from roman accounts which were very biased towards um the Druids. Another aspect of Halloween, obviously, and Samhain in sort of the pre-Christian times is the idea of fairies as well. And we'll be doing a specific uh, specific episode on fairies, but there was a strong belief in the little people, particularly in countries like pre-Christian Ireland. And the belief was that you kind of had to keep the fairies very much in your good books because they were very resentful of the humans taking over the land that once belonged to them and so they kind of delight in taking mischief and revenge on the humans that took away all of their green land and their forests and this idea leads to the practice of people leaving bowls of cream and oatmeal outside their dwellings before they go to sleep to keep the little people happy in scotland you get the traditions of leaving a libation of milk which is known as a liach Na Grogak, and apologies, I don't speak Gaelic, so that's probably not pronounced correct. But it was known as milk to the hairy ones and was poured over a particular stone. And if this was not carried out, it would bring misfortune on the family's livestock. 
Samhain is also the night when the fairy mounds uh, are meant to have stood wide open and the fairies are meant to walk the earth and people have to be very careful when they're walking near to them on this day as if they were not careful they could be dragged into the other world. There's meant to be lots of fairies and we'll be doing a particular episode on them um, because I want to talk about some of the the kind of really special fairy places that I've visited over the last couple of years. Um, Some of the most famous ones in Ireland are known as the Puka um, and they were particularly feared at Samhain and they take lots of different forms. So people have described them as appearing as a black horse and... Farmers were also told that they needed to collect all their crops before October the 31st, otherwise what would be left would be contaminated um, by the fairies and it would also bring you very bad luck. Other um, forms of these fairies or these kind of elemental beings are things like Lady Gwyn, who was a headless woman dressed in white who's meant to chase travellers and who's accompanied by a black pig. So look out for her this Halloween if you're out and about. Um, there's another one called a Dulahan, who's an impish creature who is meant to appear on a horseback, but also sometimes headless. And that one is meant to be a death omen to anyone who sees it. So it's not a particularly good one you want to see. And then also you get stories like the Wild Hunt as well, which is another topic which we'll talk about at some other time. But the Wild Hunt essentially is this this. It's kind of like the archetypal hunt that goes across the sky um, on Halloween and you need to be careful you don't get sucked up into that because you you kind of disappear basically. But I'll be doing an episode on the wild hunt if anyone's interested in that. Um, So that's just some of the the kind of main things around the festival of Samhain. Obviously when the Romans began to conquer the Celtic territories um, things began to change and um, by AD 43 the Romans had succeeded in claiming the majority of the Celtic lands and they ruled for approximately 400 years um, but obviously combining lots of those Celtic traditions into their own and there's two particular Roman holidays that were merged with Samhain which is worth um, thinking about. One which is called Lemuria which ran from the 9th, 11th to the 13th of May and that was dedicated to placating the angry or restless dead. There's also another Roman festival called Feralia which is a day in late October when the Romans traditionally commemorated the passing of the dead and on Feralia the, the living relatives were meant to visit the graves of the dead and they leave them gifts in the form of bread soaked in wine Um, they also lit wreaths of flowers and violet petals as well as bread and you still see aspects of that in some cultures um, still today on all all souls day people will go to the graves of their relatives and you know they'll have a drink and eat some cake etc because it's seen as your it's seen as you're really communing with that with the dead and it's that day when you can both get together again. The Romans also had a day called Pomona Day which was honouring the Roman goddess of fruit and trees and obviously the symbol of Pomona was the apple and the incorporation of this celebration into Halloween and Samhain 
probably is the origin of things like wassailing, which is the practice that some orchards do around Halloween. All souls will go around the trees and bless them for the future harvest, and they'll give offerings um, to the apple trees themselves. And obviously you get the tradition of apple bobbing, which is a kind of traditional game, which I actually played when I was a child, but I'm not sure how many kids play that now uh, on Halloween night. In 43 AD, Roman Emperor Claudius Caesar um, obviously outlaws the Druid religion and the sacrificial rites associated with Samhain. And in the fifth chapter of the Twelve Caesars, the Roman biographer Suetonius wrote... He, Claudius, utterly abolished the cruel and inhuman religion of the Druids among the Gauls, which under Augustine had merely been prohibited to Roman citizens. And in 61 AD, obviously people know, under the command of Suetonius Paulinus, the Roman army invades the Isle of Anglesey, and that's really meant to be the kind of last stand of the Druids, although personally I don't think it was. I think it probably went underground. It was an oral tradition primarily anyway, and uh, you know, would have would have continued in different forms. Moving on to some of the Christian aspects of Halloween. Um, obviously in the fourth century AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine declares the new religion of Christianity to be the religion of the Roman Empire. And this is quite an interesting story because this famously occurs after he sees a vision on the eve of the Battle of Milvian Bridge, which assures him a victory in the name of Christ. And this experience is described by the Constantine apologist Eusebius as the following, and I quote, He saw with his own eyes the trophy of a cross of light in the heavens, above the sun, and bearing the description, Conquer by this. At this sight he himself was struck with amazement, and his whole army also, which followed him on this expedition and witnessed the miracle. The Christians obviously did not fully understand all of the Celtic beliefs. Um, there was a lot of suspicion around concepts of Samhain as associating with the, with the idea of hell. So obviously the dead coming back. And apparently there was actually some confusion with the name Samhain being connected with... Um, with the actual god of the dead as well. So that's another thing that they kind of thought. So it's likely that, the yeah, the, the pagan traditions obviously did start to get kind of stamped out a little bit, but they tended to kind of get blurred in as well. So, you know, the, the people who were pagan would have continued to light their sacred fires on top of the hills at Samhain, you know, practice divination and welcome their dead back to them. And although there was a Christian overlay on this, cultural practices are very difficult to just stamp out like that. So, you know, the older Samhain practices of the fires, the disguises and that type of thing would have carried on. And even after the Christianization of Samhain, bonfires are still lit. Um, only often now they were lit in honour of Christian heroes and saints and the Christian tradition would slowly incorporate a lot of the symbols of the pagans into their churches, as well as changing the focus of Samhain to be focused on prayers to the saints. And according to the Catholic tradition, all of the world's saints are spiritually connected with the world 
and can intercede on people's behalf. So by praying to the saints, we can make a better connection. And this is really to do with like the Catholic catechism, which also you know, talks about we're all connected to each other through this shared communion with Christ. In the 7th century, Pope Boniface IV introduced uh, a festival known as All Saints Day to honour God and the dead saints. This festival was originally observed on May the 13th, which is obviously relevant if we think about the dates of the Roman festival that we recently discussed, which was Lemuria on the 13th of May. So obviously there's a bit of a connection going on there. Um, so it was originally on the 13th of May, but then in the year 900, Gregory III changes it to November the 1st in an effort really to, as I said, supplant that pagan Samhain festival. So All Saints Day was also called All Hallows Day and Hallowmass. And Hallow means holy. And the evening before it, October the 31st, which is Halloween, was afterwards known as All Hallows Eve, which later becomes Halloween. Just a quick uh, note of interest there. The word hallow comes from the old English word halga, which means a holy man or to be precise, a saint. So All Hallows Day is the saint's day and it's a day to have a celebratory feast to honour the saints. In the Middle Ages, um, obviously, you know, we the most a lot of the countries were Christian at that time, um, particularly, you know, Britain, etc. And Samhain was still being celebrated with these, you know, these fires, um, which were also known as Sam Shagans, and also, you know, the offerings to the fairies, etc. And it's also during this time that we begin to see things like the carved turnips or the jack-o'-lanterns. They're beginning to appear. The earliest forms of those apparently were you were often a carved turnip because obviously we wouldn't have had necessarily um, pumpkins in that time and they would put an ember of coal within the turnip and then carry it around on a stick. And there's, it's quite difficult to find out the reason why they used to carve faces on the, on the pumpkins, but it's been suggested that this may be connected with the Celtic idea of the head being the place where the immortal soul was housed. So it's almost like this symbol of light um, shining out into the darkness. The origin of the jack-o'-lantern has several different stories. Some suggest it originates in the practice of lighting candles or fires which were placed in gourds or clay bowls for the dead to follow as they walk the earth. So it's almost like a nice guiding beacon for your dead relatives to come back you put it in the window and they would know where to come to because they'd obviously recognize that that had been made by their relatives and that's a really nice idea i think this this kind of lantern or beacon to show show them the way back to home there's another version um, or story or theory that suggests that jack lanterns associated with the irish folk tale of stingy jack who is a drunk con man who apparently fools the devil into banning him from hell. But because of his sinful life, he can't enter heaven. And after his death, Stingy Jack is con condemned to roam the world, 
carrying a small lantern made from a turnip with a hot red ember lighting his path. And I just wanted to quote this story because I think it's quite a nice description of it. Stingy Jack and the devil enter a pub to have a drink. Jack convinces the devil to turn himself into a coin to pay for the drinks. But instead of using the coin, Jack slipped it into his pocket and next to a silver cross. The cross prevented the devil from changing back into his original form. But Jack eventually freed the devil under the condition that he would not bother Jack for one year. And if Jack should die during that year, the devil would not claim his soul. And the devil agreed to these terms. Jack again tricked the devil. This time the devil climbed into a tree to pick a piece of fruit. While he was up in the tree, Jack carved a sign of the cross into the tree's bark that the devil could not come down. Once again, Jack struck a bargain with the devil. He would free the devil from the tree if he promised not to bother Jack for ten more years. And if Jack died during those years, the devil would not claim his soul, and the devil again agreed to these terms. Not long after this, Jack did indeed die. But because of his trickery, God would not allow him into heaven. In keeping his word not to take his soul, the devil also would not allow Jack into hell. Instead, the devil sent Jack out into the darkness of the world, between worlds, with nothing but a burning piece of coal. Jack placed the coal into a carved-out turnip and has been roaming the earth ever since. The Irish began to refer to Jack's ghostly figure as Jack of the Lantern and then simply as Jack Lantern. So that's a nice little story about some of the origin of uh, the Jack-o'-lantern. Um, obviously it's been kind of heavily Christianized, so I suspect there is probably earlier stories that would be from a more pagan perspective. Um, some experts also believe that the, the, the Jack-o'-lantern is also connected with the will-o'-the-wisp or the swamp and the marsh gases, which you see glowing at night in some marshy areas. And Jack-o'-lantern in terms of the name, is also used as a name for that strange ethereal phosphorescent light that sometimes can be seen in these swamps and marshes, which is known as will-o'-the-wisp in the USA or corpse light in the UK and also witch fire in Africa, which is interesting. Interestingly, there's also a tradition in Japan that is the equivalent of the Halloween festival where families apparently light glowing paper lanterns outside their houses which are designed to welcome home the ancestral spirits but keep the evil ones at bay. So again it's this concept of welcoming the dead back with that beautiful lamp, that positivity, that light, that shining light of the summer that's been enclosed in that fruit that's the fruit of the summer, the harvest, with that light that's welcoming the dead back. Another tradition which is quite interesting is the tradition of the Dumb Supper. And this is a tradition that likely began in the Middle Ages as well, where food was basically eaten by celebrants, but only after inviting the ancestors to join in. 
And this tradition was very popular in Ireland, but also in parts of the UK, where a supper was organised as a ritual offering to the spirits of the dead and the ancestors. In Ireland, apparently, this sometimes consisted of an offering of a bowl of porridge or tobacco. And also they talk about setting an empty chair at the table so obviously the dead can come back and join the family of the living. This idea of a supper for the dead is a really beautiful idea, I think, and obviously it gives the chance for the family to interact with the spirits. These meals are meant to have been held in complete silence to honour the dead, and they also occasionally were used in fortune-telling. So, for example, there's stories from the Ozarks in the USA that talk about girls holding dumb suppers to find out the name of their future husband who's meant to arrive at midnight. And there's some interesting accounts about that if people want to check it out. Children are meant to have sort of played games as well to entertain the spirits when they arrived. And then obviously the parents would be telling them, you know, what the latest family news was as well. And they would usually leave the doors and the windows might be open so that obviously the dead can come and then they can leave if they need to. There's another tradition as well. Um, connected from around this time which is the origin of soul cakes and this is really to do with the tradition that bakeries throughout central and particularly southern Europe would be filled on All Souls Day with small square cakes decorated with buns and they were known as soul cakes and these cakes were meant to be eaten to help bring peace and mercy to the souls of Christians who had died in the previous year and they apparently were just as important as hot cross buns on Good Friday or also things like plum pudding at Christmas. And maybe related, some experts believe, to there's a Celtic tradition of actually baking bread with the last grain of harvest at Samhain. So you've got this kind of final bread which is blessed during these ceremonies and then that is the bread that you take back to your home. And it's very much this kind of idea of, again bringing that light of the summer into the darkness. By the 16th century, the practice of souling um, also had become very popular. And souling is really this early form of trick-or-treating, really. So this involved people walking around the streets on All Souls Day, singing and begging for food and money. And they would traditionally be given soul cakes in return for saying a prayer for a deceased loved one, which would then help that... Um, soul of the dead person to ascend through purgatory much faster and this is the idea that the Christian idea that when you died you didn't necessarily go straight to heaven or hell you would go into this kind of intermediary state called purgatory and then with the prayers of the church and the family and the faithful then you would go um, you'd be able to leave purgatory much quicker um, after the Protestant's reformation um souling carries on in britain but um now a lot of the in terms of the protestants they had a kind of slightly different approach to it and they offered to actually pay for the people of the house and their loved ones instead of those in purgatory so they'd be praying for the people that lived in that house and essentially you know they'd get money or food for a prayer and this is a song from, uh, a souling song from Cheshire in England, which I just wanted to read out, which is from that period. Soul, soul, a soul cake. 
I pray good misses a soul cake, an apple or pear, a plum or a cherry, any good thing to make us merry, one for Peter, two for Paul, three for him who made us all, up with the kettle and down with the pan, give us good alms and we'll be gone. And that's a souling song from Cheshire. So this game of trick-or-treating is likely uh, derived from that. I think it's obviously much earlier as well from the point of view of this concept of the spirits coming to the door to get food. It sounds like souling is actually probably a a later adaptation of that idea. And um, you obviously get the concept in Ireland and Scotland. There's things like mumming as well, which is where people would dress up in costumes and go door to door singing songs to the dead. During the Reformation, All Hallows Day was abolished as communing with dead saints and spirits was not seen as the the most healthy thing to do if you were a good Christian. However, it was formally restored in 1928, which is very late, really, considering. And the format we have now, we very much think, you know, things like the Irish potato famine I think played quite a big important role in this establishment of Halloween as a holiday, particularly in the USA, where they suggested that there's around 700,000 men, women and children moved from Ireland. And it's a huge festival over in the States. I know uh, you guys do an awful lot there and in obviously in the UK as well. But there's a lot of these traditions that would have would have kind of carried over from those Celtic um, countries. So just to finish, I mean, from a kind of magical pagan perspective, Halloween and November the 1st is still very much considered to be, you know, the beginning of a new year and also a really important festival in terms of honouring what has passed and also planning ahead for the future. The festival Halloween coming at the end of the year, you know, it really helps us to understand that, yes, the summer is over but that new life and new exciting things are going to come out of the darkness in the future. And and also really not to fear, like don't live in fear that the silence of the winter, but embrace it and build a relationship with it. Um, in the same way that they talk about death, you know, everyone's going to die, unfortunately, but, you know, you can work and build a relationship with that, um, with that reality and you know, it becomes less of a fearful thing. And we've all been through very dark times this year, globally, with obviously coronavirus. So I think taking the idea of the lantern or the lamp uh, in the darkness and placing it outside our door with a little bit of food is a really nice allegory of how, you know, we can come together as a nation and start to work more as a community rather than focusing on just ourselves you know, in years gone by, a community or a village would have faced an awful lot of trouble and danger. And so it's through festivals like Samhain and obviously Halloween in today's society where, you know, we'd come together as one. We'd share, we'd celebrate and we'd cry together about the triumphs, fears and celebrations of the year. We are all humans. So let's light up a jack-o'-lantern and invite the living and the dead around to celebrate this beautiful existence that is life.
Nothing is ever lost or destroyed. Everything changes and transforms into something beautiful, stretching off into the eternal darkness where we become one with our ancestors. I'd like to finish this episode with a Celtic blessing um, to send out some positive energy, some light to everyone out there who's celebrating Halloween this night on their own or with their families or missing their families or missing their friends. This blessing is for you. May the blessing of light be on you. Light without and light within. May the blessed sunlight shine on you like a great peat of fire. So that a stranger and friend may come and warm himself at it. And may light shine out of the two eyes of you. Like a candle set in the window of a house. Bidding the wanderer come in out of the storm. And may the blessing of the rain be on you. May it beat upon your spirit and wash it fair and clean. And leave there a shining pool where the blue of heaven shines. And sometimes a star. And may the blessing of the earth be on you. Soft under your feet as you pass along the roads. Soft under you as you lie out on it tired at the end of the day and may it rest over you when at last you lie out under it may it rest so lightly over you that your soul may be out from under it quickly up and off and on its way and now may the Lord bless you and bless you kindly Amen Thanks very much for joining us this week on the Occult London podcast. Hope you've enjoyed it. Have a fantastic Halloween. And thanks very much for all your support of the podcast. And speak to you soon. Thank you. Good night.